Welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And this is my podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're going to do things a little differently. We've been talking a lot about human design on this podcast, and don't worry, I'm still obsessed with it, and there are many more human design episodes coming. But for now, I got to tell you about this really cool book that I read and this really amazing author that I got to have a conversation with. I'm so excited to share Elise Hooper with you today. She is the author of Fast Girls, which came out a few weeks ago. It is the story of the U.S. women's Olympic track team, primarily in 1936 and a little bit before that. 1936, that's Hitler's Olympics, the Olympics that took place in Germany, the last Olympics before World War II. This is so long ago, and yet it's less than 100 years ago. So, so much is similar, and so much is different. This is, you know, our grandparents were alive at this time, most likely for most of us listening. This is pre-Title IX. This is way before Nike shoes or any sort of advancements in athletics, in, especially in terms of like, in terms of female athletes. It's way before support really for athletes. It's, and I'm talking financial support and uh, mental support, like loving support, societal support. As I said, so much has changed and so much is the same. This is a fascinating look at that time in history at three women in particular. I, she's, she says she highlights three, but there is another woman who gets a, we get a good look at tidy as well. So I think you'll enjoy looking and learning about Betty and Louise and Helen and tidy. This is an incredible story by an incredible author. I loved it so much and I'm so grateful for the time I got to spend with Elise. I hope you enjoy it as well. Elise is a native New Englander who now lives in Seattle with her family. And before she became an author, she spent several years writing for television and online news outlets. And then she got her MA and taught high school literature and history. And she's the author of this book that we talked about today is called Fast Girls. And she also wrote The Other Alcott and Learning to See. You guys, I'm a total book nerd. I love reading everything. And if you ever want to know what books I'm obsessed with or what I'm currently reading, please reach out to me. Just go through KelseyAbbott.com. Use the contact me sheet and say, hey, Kelsey, what are you reading? I would love to tell you about it. Um, now, before we get into this conversation, if you want to talk about human design, if you want to dive into your human design, you can book an individual reading or a partner reading at kelseyabbott.com slash human design. The individual reading is just for you. The partner reading is for you and your romantic partner, your business partner, your sibling, your friend, your parent, your child, whomever. And you can also book human design play dates there. These are not readings and this is not coaching. This is for you if you want to learn how to read human design charts for your friends and family, then this is for you. Or if you just want to geek out about all things human design, book a play date. That's where you belong. Now, let's listen in as I talk to Elise Hooper 
the author of Fast Girls. As always, friends, I love you. Go forth and be awesome. Elise, I'm so excited you're here. I absolutely positively love the Fast Girls. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. And you've made my day. Thank you so much. I need to call you apparently every day for this. (laughs) Oh, I will gladly tell you, just gush about this book on a daily basis. But now, of course, I'm super excited to dig into your other books. So there might be a a delay as I go get those books, read them, (laughs) gush about them. Okay. So let's, um, I just said, what inspired you to write Fast Girls? Well, so I, you know, my first two books are actually about artists and I have a pretty deep art history background. I minored in art history. I've taken years of studio art classes and I was kind of just in that groove and I was casting around for kind of my third book and had an idea, was kind of working on it, but it wasn't really coming together. And then my younger daughter is a swimmer, year-round swimmer. She does all these swim teams and she had to do a biography project. At that point, she was in fourth grade and she picked Gertrude Ederly for her biography project. Now, I had no idea who Ederly was. Do, do, I know you might've read the afterword in my book. So yeah. you might know, did you know who she was before that? The first woman to cross the English Channel, someone across the English Channel. Yes, yes. Yeah. So she was an Olympic champion from 1924 in Paris. She won three medals there. And then two years later, she swims the English Channel. It takes her about 14 and a half hours, which I recently started swimming laps. And like, I have a whole new appreciation for this idea of swimming for 14 and a half hours now. That's just mind boggling to me. It but, is not um, warm water. No, not at all. In fact, the photos of her, I mean, she's all covered in like lard and everything to keep warm. You know, this is the 1920s. I recently read Diana Nyad's book actually about her journey with it. And and, I mean, in some ways, like she does have some very high tech stuff happening, but you know, to a certain degree, it's you versus the ocean and all these stories. So it's pretty amazing. Um, So Ederly really prompted me to start wondering about other trailblazing women athletes because, you know, she came home hailed as a real celebrity. I mean, President Woodrow Wilson called her America's best girl. And she, um, there was a ticker tape parade for her in Manhattan. I mean, she was a real, real bonafide celebrity in the 1920s. And yet here, this was probably 2017, 18. I had never heard of Ederly. So it really did make me wonder like, who were the other women? I mean, you know, I think we tend to associate the beginning of women's sports, like the rise of women's sports with the passage of Title IX, but that's in 1972. A couple of generations of women come before that. And so I wanted to know more about that, that sort of this generation of earlier athletes. So I started digging around and the first story I found was Betty Robinson's. And um, I mean, you know, the book, it just at a high glance, she so the olympics allow women to begin competing in track and field in 1928 up to that point they were held off because it was kind of considered really honestly too low class i mean the of the few sports that women were allowed to compete in between 1900 and 1928 they were like tennis and golf and um eventually some swimming and diving and sports that were considered aesthetically pleasing that's really what they called it you know called them um Track and field felt a little too blue collar. I mean, the life of an athlete in this era was actually really kind of an upper class life, right? You had the leisure time to pursue 
boating or riding horses or whatever. So this is kind of a whole new world that's emerging. And in fact, baseball was a real sort of um, a sport that kind of mixed the classes together. And this is right in this era as well. But so Betty Robinson has this really swift trajectory of being spotted by a teacher as she's running for the train and that teacher realizes she's fast and enter, you know, urges her to enter some races. She only has run a handful of races before she lands herself in Amsterdam for 1928 for these first Olympics where women are allowed to compete in track and field. She, and this all happens in the first few pages of the book. She has this amazing run as it turns out and she's a real upset and, and surprises everyone and, and wins a gold medal. So first woman to run in women's track and field and then first to win a gold medal, all of this stuff. My dog is barking, sorry. Um, real life. And so, <laughs> real life is happening. That is so true. And so she she comes home. She's feted as America's sweetheart, all this stuff. And she sets her sights on 1932 in Los Angeles. She's ready to go back to the Olympics. But she's in a plane crash. And this book, in many ways, has so many moments that are stranger than fiction. In fact, I've been telling people that the craziest parts of this book are the truest. And this is a great example of that. I mean, Betty's in this plane crash and left for dead. She, her body sort of tossed in the back of the truck. She's taken to a morgue. It's not till the undertaker sees her chest moving that he um, revives her. She's got two broken legs, broken arm, a, a variety of other injuries. And the doctors tell her, you'll be lucky to ever walk again. You, you've got to give up your dreams of running. But Betty was not one to be deterred. And so as I'm reading about this story, I mean, I couldn't believe, this is in my mind, one of the greatest comeback stories I've ever heard because she does not listen to those doctors and she doubles, she quadruples down really on all of her efforts to get back to running. And I just was kind of amazed, like how had I not heard of this? And so I kept reading um, and then found these other women Olympians, these other pioneers, um, Helen Stevens, who was an amazing athlete who, if we hadn't had World War II, I think we'd, there's no way we couldn't know about Helen. She was unstoppable, and it's really only because World War II leads to um, two different Olympics being canceled that I think she doesn't have this amazing Olympic career. Um, and then um, there's Louise Stokes. And Louise Stokes is actually the sort of figure that I knew the least about. She, she was the hardest to find information about, and, and just the record is, is pretty thin on her. She was a young Black woman outside of uh, Massachusetts. She was in, outside of Boston in Malden. And she was also identified by a coach as just being really fast. She rose up through the ranks of New England's racing uh, track and field circuit. And she ends up getting an invitation to try out for the Olympic team in 1932. That the, Those trials happen in Chicago. She ends up qualifying to go to Los Angeles along with another black woman. So they, Louise Stokes and Tidy Pickett are the first two American black women to qualify for the Olympics. And so all of this stuff that I just kind of couldn't believe, um, these women, I had never heard of them. I, I knew nothing about them. And so that's when I just... I had this background, I had run track and I did some field events, but track was really my thing in high school. And I run, I run races, including marathons and half marathons and all the distances after school. And so I just kind of felt this calling to the story. I thought these three women, Betty, Louise and Helen all come to these 1936 games from kind of different paths. They come from different classes, um, 
clearly different races, all these things. I wanted to, I thought they just portrayed as a group a really interesting look into this world of early, early athletics for women. So, so then the adventure was on. And next thing I knew, I was off to the races learning about these three different Olympics and really what life was like for these women on kind of just their social level. Like really, what was it like to be a young woman in these different communities during this time period? It was the Great Depression, of course. And then um, what was it like to be at these Olympics? These, each of these Olympics are very different. Um, although because they're the three that happened before the World War, uh, World War II, they're kind of a discrete group when it comes almost to track and field history. So I was just absolutely riveted by the stories of these women and really the tenacity they brought to overcoming obstacles that just, I think, appeared insurmountable to many. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> the, um, so the first thing I wanted to say is that as I was reading... Like you did such a good job in infusing just like embodiment into each one of these characters. Like as I was reading, I was each of these people. I could oh, relate at you. such a soul level. Thank you so much. So good. Um, but then yeah, the the stuff that they encountered that seemed so insurmountable as before we hit record, I was like, this is less than a hundred years ago. This is not that long ago. And now look at where women's sports are. Yeah, we're still behind in right. terms of like recognition and payment and right. all of that. But any woman today, if you tell them this, like the letters from yeah. Betty or yeah. to Betty, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting tension, I think, because yes, <laughs> things have changed so much. I mean, I grew up outside of Boston watching the Boston Marathon being run. And I watched Joan Benoit, you know, win several times. And I remember reading, I must've been a teenager at the time. I read a story in the newspaper where she described training for these early marathons, you know, cause women weren't allowed to run the Boston Marathon. I mean, I think they first start running it in the late sixties. I would have to double check that, but, um, you know, so, and, and the first women's marathon in the Olympics is run in 1984. So a long time passes between women until women are allowed to run the marathon in Olympic history. Um, I was just amazed to read that she described training in rural Maine. Um, you know, this must've been then during the seventies that she would kind of hide in ditches when cars would come by because it was considered so weird that she was out running. And then another woman I spoke to who was a generation younger than, she was friends with one of the women in the women Olympians in this novel, but she was a generation younger. And she described going to Tufts for graduate school in the late fifties. And one day after her classes, she went out for a run on the track just to kind of decompress. She was an athlete her whole life. And the police showed up because there were reports of a suspicious woman out on the track. Like, what was a woman doing running on the track? That was so befuddling to the people. So, yes, we have come a long way in the sense that you and I can join any race we want to. In fact, there are more women on the starting line of most races today than men. Um, we can join the gym. We can join our school's teams really without obstacle. But, you know, at the same time, we are looking still at some pretty significant gaps in pay and benefits for professional athletes and endorsement deals and coaching opportunities 
in sort of board leadership roles. Like, I mean, the Olympics still does not have a ton of women on its executive committee. Uh, there's still, there, when it comes to the Olympics, there still aren't even an equal number of events open to men and women. So, and, and even when I think back to 2016 in Rio, there was a lot of talk in the media about how the media talks about women athletes. Remember, I mean, there was a lot of talk about how the camera, when certain women would win their events, if their husband was their coach, they were immediately identified as the wife of him, right? I mean, she was the winner, but suddenly she was identified as the wife. Or, um, you know, there was a big deal made about a Chinese swimmer, a woman, who announced afterward that she had had her period while she was swimming. And that was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. So these things that we, we still almost sort of take for granted. Um, you know, there's still a lot of room for how we talk about women athletes and the expectations for them. I mean, still the obsession around the fact that Serena Williams just had a baby and it's not even just, I mean, I've seen her kid is now a small child playing tennis on the courts beside yes. her mother. I mean, that's like still so obsessed. It, 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 the, many journalists have been obsessed with that. So I think we still have a long way to go. Fortunately, it's true. Like when I, I recreate a lot of newspaper stories in Fast Girls that sort of borrow from the tone and the language used during the 1920s and 30s, and they wouldn't hesitate from describing the buxom gal in lane three. We have fortunately moved beyond that, but but in a lot of ways, like, have we? I mean, how are we still, like, photographing women athletes and talking about them? I think there's still a lot there for us to explore. Oh, yes. <laughs> Preach. I agree completely. Um, and actually, as you were talking about the, you mentioned the woman who's just a generation younger who got the police called on yeah. her for running. Yeah. It actually reminded me when I studied abroad in Italy, I only ran a couple times, but when I did, men chased me. Like I would hear plastic bags rustling behind me and it was it would be a guy who just came out of the grocery store and saw me running. And so he started running after me. Yeah. This is terrifying. So yeah. I stopped running. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. It's not safe for women to run, even in this country in places. And we know it's, it's not safe for people of color to run out. I mean, yeah. that has become painfully evident in the last few months. So still, I mean, these, these things we like to think we take for granted. There's still a lot of room to talk about these things that we're doing and, and really how um, safe are we? So I don't know, it's fascinating. I mean, it really just opens up this whole world of all these different ways you can take the discussion about women and sports. And, and I've, I, I've really just been so honored to write about this topic because it's made me think so much about things I've taken for granted. Um, you know, I was grew up, I mean, I was born in 1974. I never had any problem playing, signing up for sports at all my schools and um, had parents who would drive me around to these crazy early morning practices and things. So I've been really lucky in a lot of ways, but, but it's fascinating that not all kids today even still have access to these things, right? Be it because of race or economic privilege, all of these different aspects to our society. And I think, you know, I tend to really love talking about this book. I mean, it's so satisfying to have athletes connecting with it. But I tell people, you don't have to be someone who's like, quote unquote, sporty to enjoy this book at all. I think sports actually are a really interesting mirror. They kind of are that microcosm of what's happening in a larger society. And so sports stories 
really can kind of um, make much stronger tension in stories and bring out that contrast of kind of a struggle, an objective, you know, a winning and losing situation. And so I think, well, I love that athletes are connecting with the book. It really is for anyone, anyone who's looking for, I hope, you know, I hope readers see this as an inspiring, uplifting story. At the same time, it definitely ends on a note of like, there's still a lot of progress to be made. <laughs> so yeah. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I hope that readers feel uplifted and inspired at the end, but also that they are prompted to do some self-examination and to explore some of the, the areas where we still have a lot of progress to make. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's one place in the book, You actually, I may have still dog-eared the page. Yes, your dialogue. Um, you had, um, you had somebody say a man came to track practice where Helen oh, was yeah. running and he says, nothing good comes out of girls thinking there's something special. That, I feel like that statement is echoed in insert girls, insert human, yeah. insert uh, yeah. person depending on like the color of their skin and like anything in right. there right that is still a sentiment that is so strong in parts of our society right. nothing it's good true. because of somebody thinking that they're special yeah it's true it's true i mean uh, that yeah <laughs> it is true and it's it's a uh, I, I i hope all of the talk that's playing out in the sort of national media and and in families and households across the country. I mean, I just, I hope that we're going to see some progress from all this pain that we're seeing that, you know, 2020 is no joke as it's turning out. It's it, 2020 is just kind of one thing after another. And I, I hope that, um, I hope we end up better and stronger because of all this. It's, it's, uh, I think I've just got, I have that sort of in me that that's just a part of me. I'm an optimist that I have to believe that, that something, some good things, will hopefully emerge from, from these challenges. I, I'm with you. 2020 is the eye of the needle. I had a guest on at the end of 2019, um, who's a shamanic healer, who said, 2020, we're going through the eye of the needle and we can't take all the stuff that we've been carrying with us. And yeah. um, well, wow, was that accurate? That was prophetic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think it's the perfect time for your book to come out. Well, that's funny you say that, of course, because it, it was devastating when the Olympics got canceled. I mean, not only was I so sad on, of course, a selfish level that my book wasn't going to have kind of this thing it could kind of ride along with, but I felt so badly for all these athletes. I mean, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of this with Betty, her, she only raced in a handful of races before she ends up in Amsterdam. The trajectory could be swift for an athlete in the 20s and the 30s, maybe even beyond. But boy, that's not the case anymore. Today's athletes have trained their whole lives. And I was really following a lot of them on social media as the news came about the cancellation. And I was kind of amazed, honestly, at how these athletes didn't have like these secret escape hatches where they could train at amazing facilities that the rest of us just didn't know about or didn't have. No, no, they were all just like stuck in their garages working out too, or their backyards and swimmers making these like elaborate TRX things to keep their shoulders. I mean, it really was humbling in many ways to see how they were stuck in the same old situation as the rest of us is 
making do, kind of reinventing things, um, being creative. And so, yeah, I mean, this book, I was so sad. I wanted it to be relevant this summer because of the Olympics. And now it's become relevant. Well, it can be your way to experience the Olympics, right? Without the Olympics yeah, happening in yes. Tokyo. There's that. Like, absolutely. There's no real Olympics this year. So right. instead, <laughs> we've got your book. And <laughs> right, right. And you get three Olympics in that book. Um, absolutely. But also, I think it is just so relevant on all these other points of discussions about sexism. I mean, Me Too is written all over this book and, and now in race and all of it. So it's turned out monuments even. I mean, I have a whole story about like these sort of monuments in this book. And um, it's crazy how just you know, our perspective just changes on what, what makes something relevant. 2020 just continues to serve up surprises. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know more about, um, so you found, how did you first learn about Betty? She was the first one you discovered, but was that just I, Googling? I don't even know the rabbit hole in which I traveled. Like I would have to go back way back, way back, way back into my browser history. I don't even know. Was it a website or was it, I have a lot of these books that, um, they're the books that are kind of these beautifully illustrated books about like 50 best athletes. And, and yes, I guess they're for kids, but they're actually so beautiful. Like I'd be reluctant to let my young, young child touch them because they're, they're really art, art beautifully done. Um, I have a lot of those books. I love those books that profile like daring women of the twenties or a bunch of women athletes and all these things. And so I don't really remember where I first, like how I triangulated in on this, but but once I found Betty, I knew I was onto something. She was kind of the, the hook that drew me in. And then how did you discover Helen and Louise and Tidy? Well, it was really just kind of reading about the women from this era because, I mean, um, they all have their own real distinct place in history, right? Betty is the first woman to win a gold, any medal in um in women's track and field. And then Helen really is unstoppable. I mean, I won't get too much into her success because that does kind of get into the sort of how the book will end. But, and then Louise is like the Olympian we all should know about, but who's really been erased from history. And, and so they all just kind of symbolized such different Olympic experiences, but that I could breathe because they were, their time was, braided together you know I could braid them together enough in a way I did have to change some dates and and do a little fiddling around to make it really work together but they really just the three of them all bring sort of a different view into this into this experience and so um it was just reading a ton of old newspapers I mean I was subscribing I am a subscriber to newspapers.com and you can go back into all these old newspapers it's such a trip and read everything from the weather to market forecasts and, and just uh, those newspapers give such an interesting insight into these women and um, how they were viewed by society. I mean, one thing, you know, there were just all the gems I was able to find. Like, I didn't know that um, rolling pin throwing was actually a sporting event for women. <laughs> and I actually went out with my rolling pin and tried throwing it just to see. It's pretty hard. Um, you throw it like a javelin? Well, or I like threw it like I through it so it's sort of circle you know I'm, I'm like gesturing to you right now like yeah. end over end how it traveled through the air but maybe you could do it the javelin you wouldn't get very far I, I had to really like chuck you it like, and watch it kind of 
spin around in the air. And you know, they, they would refer to me if I had been, for example, a rolling pin champion, a throwing champion, I would have been Mrs. Hooper um, throwing. I mean, it's just the, all the different little things I was able to pick up on from these newspapers were just so fascinating. That's when I realized, oh yeah, I have to write newspaper stories for this book because um, it, it does just, it really opens the book up in a way that first of all, I'm able to like literally report on things in a pretty quick, efficient way, but also able to capture the tone, the way, um, the attitudes toward these women, um, the attitudes toward all kinds of things like immigration and race. And so all of it, it just, there were so many things that were, I mean, those stories were so both fun and infuriating to write at the same time. Right, and that comes across. Like I felt, I felt the fury and I felt like, oh, this must've been really fun for her. (laughs) Yeah. And they're all, you know, something that this is kind of funny, but something I hadn't even really thought about was they're all really written by men. And so when it came time to cast the narrator for the audio book, um, they picked a male narrator to read all those. And I hadn't even really gone into it thinking, oh, all the outside perspective needs to be from men, but that worked out. And I think I'm so glad it did because I think it also kind of gives that like Greek chorus almost of all these male voices that were opposed to these women for so many different reasons. Yeah. And the, so the tone of the newspaper articles, the way they are just making things up and, and the details that are also like all the opinions in them. And the, it's just, it's astounding at how much journalism has changed and how much it hasn't changed. Well, you know, the newspapers of back then reminded me of like blogs and social media today, right? That sort of really gossipy tone and snarky, um, the things that would never, I would think, fly in, in a real bona fide newsroom today. Yeah, th- those went sort of undisputed back then. Um, and so, but I mean, that's exactly what we turn to certain blogs and, and Twitter feeds for because, you know, certain um, writers are able to capture that exactly, but for 2020. So, so yeah, I mean, the tone has changed, but I think maybe just, or the tone has just shifted into sort of a new medium, right? Yeah. Well, and it's a medium in which now, you know, when you're reading someone's blog, you're getting their opinion. Well, that's true, but that's interesting. I think we're revealing our age here. Yes. You know, if you, like, I've taught for years, I taught high school. That is really a skill that needs to be taught and learned. So, I mean, teaching kids how to be discretionary about where they're getting their news. You know, my younger daughter right now constantly is quoting TikTok as a news source. And Dave and I, my husband and I are like, yeah, no, that, that, that's not a news source. Um, I'm not necessarily saying what you're reading on there is incorrect, but it could be because it's just kind of, I mean, teaching kids how to identify what's a legitimate news source. And really that discussion has been totally blown up, of course, since our current president has come in and, and has his own take on what is considered news and what is not and what's, what's truthy and all this stuff. So, so this is something that I think we maybe even think, oh yeah, we need to teach kids this, but I actually think we probably need to teach a lot of adults this too. I mean, this is an ongoing skill, how to, um, with, how to look at news and, and figure out kind of what's authentic and what's not like, is your news coming through in Facebook or something where, what are the sources on some of this stuff? We're being manipulated so easily these days. How do you teach that? 
<laughs> I mean, it's really hard. Part of it, I, I think a lot of us sort of rely on brand recognition, right? We know of the New York Times and, or CNN, we know sources, we, we, we know they use fact checkers and, and even they're they getting things wrong. We know that all the time. Um, but so it does come down to a lot of times trying to identify bias in reading um, and learning to identify those sources, knowing who to go to for help, like librarians and, and teachers and, um, and yeah, but it's, it's not easy. So I think that that's a real challenge for, for moving ahead as, as news sources, quote unquote, like including TikTok here, as those all, although that might be outlawed as my understanding, my kids are all freaked out about this. Uh, that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, these things are proliferating left and right. And so kind of how do we make sense of all this? I think it's, it's really a challenge and, it, and it's a fascinating kind of t discussion topic. Mm. Yeah, I want to switch back to the book for a second. Yeah, um, yeah, I think absolutely. I remember I actually read the interview with you before I read the rest, like before I read the book, because I don't follow rules. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I think you said that you, that Helen had a journal. Yes. Okay. She did. So did you have, did, is that published? Like, cause, partly because I want more of yeah. all of these women. Okay, so it wasn't published? It's not. The, there are excerpts of it published in a biography about her, um, The Life of Helen Stevens, The Fulton Flash by Sharon Kinney Hansen. And she was a great resource for me. I mean, I met with Sharon personally when I went to Missouri. Um, she's a great help. And she does excerpt parts of the journal. And then when I went to Missouri and visited the Helen Stevens collection, like all of Helen's papers and everything that she left behind, her handwritten diary from Berlin is a part of that. And I was able to read it. I mean, it was pretty amazing. I was able to hold her size full of track shoes and all of these things. Um, it was, it was such an adventure, but so, yeah. So, and, and uh, don't get me wrong. She actually in that diary is pretty terse and pretty to the point. She like, doesn't get, she is not a gossipy writer. Let's look, put it at that. And so, um, the biography on her does expand on some of those things because Sharon was talking with Helen and was able to get more insight into some of the things that proved to be pretty juicy in that journal, like her encounters with Hitler and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> you just mentioned her size 12 track shoe. You didn't mention in the book, how did she get those? So as her coach some, buys them for her. Remember, where does he even her. buy them? Because as somebody with size eleven feet, there have oh, been times well, when they were, they were yeah. So they were men's shoes. Okay. Yeah, and in fact, Helen at first borrows stuff from the men at the local university that's in town. Um, she starts training with them, and they are all kind of loaning her their clothing and their shoes because she was six feet tall and mm -hmm. had big feet and. And yeah, most women's stuff wasn't really coming in those sizes. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure track shoes, I mean, interestingly, like fun fact, track shoes also at the 1936 Olympics have a whole sort of, there's a whole birth of like the story of the track shoe too there with like the brothers who then go on to create Adidas and I think Puma, oh. they, they kind of test out these shoes on Jesse Owens at these 1936 games and all that. So shoes are about to take off in like a whole new direction after 1936. But yeah, I mean, when I went to Helen's alma mater, William Wood, and got to see her old uniforms and, you know, some old cracked shoes, I mean, nothing was fancy. Like, the performance fabrics we know and love today, 
Yeah, she was wearing like wool, wool t-shirts even at a point. I mean, can you imagine? Ugh, it would have been so uncomfortable. I can't imagine it. And as you were talking about the uniforms in the Los Angeles Olympics, that they had to yeah. alter. I just yeah. can't imagine the vision I had. I was like, I can't imagine running in those things. I don't like it when things touch me when I'm running. I don't like right. clothing to touch me. So like, right. what well, were they dealing with? I know. And so just for readers, I mean, basically the women are handed the men's uniforms. They're like, have at it. Good luck in the race today. Here's your men's uniform. <laughs> and, you know, most of these women were not that big. So, yeah, they are scrambling to hire tailors and everything or sewing them themselves to take in the leg holes and the arm holes. I mean, in many cases, these women were really freaked out because they were, you know, indecent by those standards, like to show so much of parts of them, especially the gaping armholes on the tank tops and things like that. I mean, I don't think bra technology was what it is today. Um, so, so yeah, there's so many things, again, like the fact that we can go online and order a great sports bra today, it took the sports bra a long time to come into creation. It, I think it sort of evolved from the jock strap, actually. Yeah. So there's so much of this, everything from, I mean, something that was kind of mind boggling to me was they introduced the Kirby camera in 1932, which is basically like your instant replay. It's like your, your ancestor instant replay. And that those cameras just provided more controversy. <laughs> like the judges would gather around and watch it and then still not agree on what they were seeing. So sometimes call took like an hour for them to make a decision on who came in first, second, and third. And you had figures like the Diedrichsen, um, who was a champion of the time in 1932. She learned that if she was just sort of the loudest, she could kind of announce that she had won and the judges just might go along with that. So it was all very loosey-goosey. <laughs> it's so fascinating. I know, I know. It's it's so amazing to compare it to the Olympics of today, that at least from a viewer standpoint, now granted, I have not visited an Olympics in real life, but from a viewer standpoint, when you're watching, I mean, we tend to actually even try to watch the Canadian channel Olympic coverage, it's great, or NBC or what have you. It's a pretty slick operation. Well, all of that comes from Hitler realizing that the Olympics can be such a propaganda one, such a such a way to um, communicate like real nationalist thrust. So, so there's so much about the Olympics I hadn't realized ties back to kind of the Nazis and their desire to create this platform on which to show their own sort of power and everything. So, so the Olympics is really sort of complicated in a lot of ways. It's really political. Um, there was so much to learn about. You, sh you did such a good job showing how political it was with all the Thank coaching you. decisions Ugh. and all yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty heartbreaking in a lot of ways. It really did come down. I mean, I went and tracked down the qualifying times for those 1932 Olympics to really see where, what Louise and Tidy's times looked like compared to some of these other women. And there's no doubt that they were really fast. And, and what happens is a lot of these other white women have loud coaches, coaches who would argue on their behalf, coaches who are politically connected, who are able to get their racer into races that they shouldn't have, they never qualified for, but yet they kind of end up in the finals for the Olympics. Um, it's pretty heartbreaking how easily manipulated the system was. I think we like to think that, you know, a stopwatch is the ultimate authority, but it's not. It's all about who's running the stopwatch, right? And who's choosing who gets to go on the starting line. So, so that was all a, really, a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener for me. Because 
Yeah, I think, well, sports, everything, it just, you're going to see what's true, right? Right. Apparently not. Right? No, apparently not. A and lot not of, that long ago. Not that long ago. And I mean, I think we still see that. I mean, my husband, you know, is a big football fan and it sort of can depend on ref call. I mean, we mm-hmm. still see certain elements of how games get politicized or um, influence. You know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Again, it's an interesting mirror of society. Yeah. I, and that's why, again, this story that takes place in the 20s and 30s is such an amazing mirror to 2020. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true. I think this whole era with a war coming with the Great Depression, you know, I'm writing and I'm working on a new book right now that I've been able to really channel my anxiety for now and the uncertainty we're living under to that period. I mean, now to be fair, to put things in perspective, that was a real war happening. And um, when we talk about a war happening now, it's, it's pretty different. But I, that's, I've taken a lot of comfort in 2020 from writing about this period in the 30s and 40s because things were really dire in the 30s and 40s in ways that we can't even fully comprehend, um, or at least I can't. I, I'm, I'm pr- living in a privileged enough place to not be able to imagine it. But um, I, it, it has definitely helped me bring something new to writing about that period, to just be living under the, our current situation. Yeah. So I've got two questions that are warring for my attention right now. First one I want to ask you is, so what does your daughter think about this? Well, I have two girls, um, you know, they're teenagers, they're sort of busy. Um, so, you know, I don't think they think too much about anything I'm doing. <laughs> That's just the fun of having teenage girls. Um, but my younger one, you know, she does know, I mean, she's actually been helping me just do a couple when I've been doing Facebook lives and running a chat, you know, at the same time, she's been helping me with multiple screens. And um, so she's heard my author talk now a few times. And I think she is really quite pleased to hear herself get the shout out is sort of being the inspiration for this. And, um, you know, I think all I can say is I really just hope that their experiences moving forward are, are just get better and better than what we see in, from history. But yeah, it's been, you know, for me, writing novels has been very much a family affair. I mean, I wrote the other Alcott, my first novel, sitting at our dining room table with books piled up all around me, like making quick breaks as I was like making snacks for my kids. And we'd all sort of watch the pages stack up. And and that, I was working on that book while my youngest one was learning to read, which was a really kind of neat thing. Um, And I just took this trip to the Philippines to research the book I'm working on now and brought my 15 year old with me. And as I said, my younger one really inspired Fast Girls. And then she has been interested in the story all along. So a few times when I was kind of muddling through certain plot elements, I could talk about them with her. And she loved to kind of weigh in on what she thought should happen. And she had some great ideas for me. So I really love that. I feel really fortunate to have a job that, you know, kids understand writing books. I mean, they kind of maybe can't imagine the scale of it, but, you know, kids write papers. They have to write stories for school. So writing a book is something they are pretty close to. They can kind of imagine what that's like. So even when I was teaching high school and still writing these books at the same time, it was, I always had a really fun time talking with my students about wherever I was on whatever book I was working on, because 
I think they loved hearing about sort of my word count goals and um, they loved seeing the big stack of page proofs that would come. I think sometimes they would joke about it. it would give them a little perspective on like the 10 page assigned paper they had to work on, <laughs> you know, so um, writing book, you know, it's fun to talk about books with kids because, because when your books are really, I think uh, can be really formative for kids. You know, I think we all have those books that we hold really near and dear to our hearts that gave us an idea of what we wanted to be when we grew up or kind of opened us up or we saw a part of ourselves in book. And so um, it's really, it's really satisfying to when my kids will allow me to talk books with them. I love it. What were those books for you? Well, I mean, clearly Little Women. I grew up right outside of Concord, Massachusetts and, and visiting Orchard House for me, which was the, which was Louisa Nailcott's family home. Now it's a museum. I mean, that really showed me a woman writer and it showed me that books don't just magically appear on bookshelves. People actually write them. And that really got my gears turning as a kid. Um, and then I love, I mean, I love probably a lot of the classics that you know, a lot of us love, like, I loved the Little House books, boy. I mean, I was always throwing sheets then over our dining room chairs to make my own little covered wagons. I loved Anne of Green Gables. My younger daughter's middle name is Anne with an E after Anne of Green Gables. I mean, I loved Anne Shirley. Um, and then there were the other books as I got a little older. I loved uh, Jane Eyre. I loved some John Irving's books. I, I, I was, I've always been a reader. I, I really come to being a writer as a reader. I think about what's the book I want to read. That's the book I want to write. So I, I mean, I have a long list of books that have really, um, I mean, I have just such clear memories of like those long summer days sort of lying on a wooden floor with a book spread, spread out in front of me and just kind of losing myself in, in Narnia or Manderley or whatever. I loved those books. I mean, that was my summer. If I wasn't out kind of swimming and playing tennis, I was just kind of lying on the floor reading. Mm. And historical fiction. Did you, so did you, as a kid, did you yeah. know you wanted to be an author and did you know you wanted to be writing historical fiction? I mean, I've always loved historical fiction. Um, I mean, I would consider, you know, Little House on the Prairie, for example, to be historical fiction. I, I'm not that old, but it was current, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Did I always know I'd be writing historical fiction? No. I think if you had asked me as a kid, I would have said I would love to write books. And I was writing books. I mean, we have these old, like, I wrote all these fairy books and things like that. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a writer and that, that changed a little bit. As I got older, I thought I wanted to be a journalist and I really saw that as a way to travel and, and kind of get out of my little small town. And then once I did that, I kind of wanted to go back into writing novels. So, so I've done a lot of different type of writing and then I was also teaching English and history. So, so I think it was really all kind of coming together because I do really love history so much. And I think of historical fiction as kind of being that perfect blend of like escape and adventure, and, but you're also learning. I mean, you're learning something, hopefully. When, when readers tell me they had so much fun with the book and that they learned so much too, like that is the ultimate compliment I can get, honestly. I had so much fun with the book and I learned it. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I mean, really, that is as good as it gets for me. That's, that's all I want. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, last two questions. I think I always say this and 
who knows? Because as I said, I don't follow the rules. Um, a first thing is if you had a billboard, uh-huh. you could put it anywhere, but the whole world can see it. What would it say? Right. What would it say? I mean, there's no words on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could find some really beautiful quotes from some other books if I had time. But off the top of my head, it would have to be a message, something along the lines of just to go for it. Right. Because for a long time, I think I resisted writing, trying to write a novel because I told myself I would wait until I knew what I wanted to write about, or I would wait until I knew more, or I would wait until things settled down. Like I kept kind of moving the the starting line out and it was clearly fear driving all of that. And, um, you know, fear of not knowing what I was doing, fear of rejection, fear of looking stupid, all of that. Um, and, and it wasn't until really I had kids of my own and finally just, I had nothing to lose. Like who, I, I don't really care anymore. What, what, you know, like I had, I really didn't care if I was, if I looked stupid or something. And so I just went for it. I, I told myself like, life is never going to get easier. When it gets easier, you're sort of in trouble, right? Cause that means, you know, <laughs> that's sort of the end. Um, so I just, I just went for it. I, I realized that you don't just find time in the day to write. You have to make it. And so I was waking up really early every morning to write before kind of the day really got underway. So, I mean, I don't want to like crib from Nike or something, but it is something to the effect of you've just got to do things and, um, and figure it out and not spend a ton of time from the sidelines, like planning and thinking and worrying. You just, you do have to at some point just go for it. It's perfect. <laughs> and then finally, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I wish, I mean, I feel like I should kind of say it was something about writing a book, but I, I, I mean, I've taught high school, right? So I'm used to people criticizing me. I mean, you know, try standing in front of a bunch of kids that like teenagers at seven 30 in the morning, you're going to run into a lot of obstacles. So I certainly am not you. I'm not, I'm no stranger to getting critiqued or anything. So that, that really didn't scare me. Um, that's a really good question. I would actually, I think it's sort of something to do with like, um, a real sort of sense of physical challenge because, and I, I guess I can just so quickly think of like the times I've really felt my legs shaking, my heart pounding my, and, and we went to Hawaii, uh, gosh, it was only a year ago. And we ended up, um, snorkeling. We weren't scuba diving or anything fancy. We were just snorkeling at the site that is not far offshore. It was like a, it was an old um, pier that had fallen down and it really had created all of these amazing kind of um, underwater plant life and, and shapes and reefs and coral. It was so cool. And there were some sharks there and that was terrifying, but the sharks also at the same time were totally not interested in us. And also they were big sharks. Um, but they were the kind, like they were, is it reef sharks? They, they, they weren't going to bother us essentially, but they were like five feet long. That was terrifying to me. I, I mean, I grew up, I'd seen Jaws as a kid and like didn't go in the ocean for, you know, a whole summer as a result, much to my parents' chagrin. Um, and so that was a pretty big deal for me. I can like just still, I can bring up the visceral response I had of terror mixed with excitement and then mixed with a real sense of like, Oh, look, that wasn't so bad. I survived that. Mm. (laughs) 
and there's the there's the life lesson right there. Well, two, one, don't ever watch Jaws. Right. And two, <laughs> it's not so bad once once you're there. Yeah, you can survive things. Absolutely, absolutely. That's so true. Elise, this has been so fun. What else do you want people to know? Oh gosh, I just want people to keep reading. <laughs> I want people to keep reading books. I mean, I think, you know, I encounter people so often who say, oh, I have no time for reading. And I really have to bite back the question of like, well, how much time did you spend on Facebook earlier or something? I mean, I think we, I think there's a time and a place clearly for social media. I mean, it can be a way to connect with people you don't normally get to see or, or whatever. And these days while we're pretty isolated, it, it can be important. But at the same time, I think it's really important to sit and like marinate in your own thoughts. Um, and so reading that idea, like this kind of slow build to things um, and really thinking about things and, and thinking about words and ideas. I just think that's really important. And I don't want us to, to lose that skill set. Um, I don't want us to all just become so sort of attracted to the next bright, shiny thing that's moving really fast and maybe singing and dancing and whatever. I think we need to um, slow down a little. I think if there's anything the last few months have taught us, it is that you can slow down and you will, you will be okay. Um, there's real beauty to be had in taking a good look at, the, at our surroundings and thinking about them and, and hearing the voices in our own head, right? Um, even sometimes just putting down the book and staring out the window. Like the fact that none of us can arrive at a red light anymore and just stare at the red light and think without like pulling up our phones and like getting a 30 second hit of Instagram is pretty ridiculous. And don't get me wrong. I sometimes do that at red lights. I'm not proud of that. And I know that can get me in a lot of trouble and I'm going to stop. But <laughs> I think we need to just, just take a breath here and there. Right. Oh, absolutely. I actually, I took a social media break in December, like between I don't know when, um, but I read like eight books in that time. Yeah. I really started falling in love with staring at the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now I've been off social media again for two and a half months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. long. And one, I'm not missing it. I'm right. missing like a little tiny bit um, yeah. of just like the connection with people, but I still am using Facebook messenger so I can still reach yeah. out to people. Right. And again, uh, I just like this, this out here, this is real life. Yeah. So true. more time in real life. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Absolutely. <laughs> you are incredible. Thank you Aww, so thank much. You. Um, where can people get the books? The the book, and then tell us just quickly about your other books, please. Sure, sure. Well, hopefully they can find the books wherever books are sold. I mean, I, especially now more than ever, encourage people to support their local independently owned bookstore. Um, these are, you know, hubs of democracy, and I think we need to support them. Uh, so I, if you don't have a bookstore in your community, I would always encourage um, there's bookshop.org, which is a great way. They're kind of a, it's a big group that's sort of supporting independent bookstores while um, also selling books. And, you know, there are always your big box store. I mean, they're all the usual places. So it should be available wherever you typically buy. And then uh, this is my third book. My first book was about the Alcott sisters. It's called The Other Alcott. And it, it really focuses on May Alcott, who the world knows best as Amy March. Turns out Amy March has a, well, I think if you've seen Greta Gerwig's movie, you have an indication of this, but 
she had a really interesting life of her own. She ended up being a really um, fascinating and trailblazing painter at a time when women just weren't encouraged to do that. And she took a lot of chances and, and, and had some failures, but had some great successes too. And she has really lived kind of eclipsed in the shadow of her much more famous older sister. Louisa, who wrote Little Women. And then um, my second book is called Learning to See, and that is about Dorothea Lange. And, and Dorothea Lange is a photographer most people don't seem to know her name just off the top of her head. But once you know her, her work is everywhere. She took the, some really iconic images of the 1930s, of specifically of the Dust Bowl, um, migrant workers. I mean, her work is often associated with the Grapes of Wrath. She also took some photos of the uh, internment of the Japanese Americans during World War II. The government actually hired her to document it and then fired her and suppressed the photos. So she was a real, she has a real transformation as kind of this businesswoman who arrives in San Francisco bent on taking like high society portrait photographs to someone who's a real artist and activist. And I really wanted to understand that transformation more. She lived during a fascinating period in time and she just has a really interesting personal story. Talk about being really relevant. I mean, she is a working mom before working moms existed. Uh, really a great, just a woman who there's so much to learn from. So, so those are my first two books. And so, as I said, two books about artists that I pivoted to my fast girls. And now the book I'm working on right now is about a group of army nurses in the Philippines uh, when World War II occurs. And they are kind of, they are caught on the front lines treating soldiers. And then they're actually taken as prisoners of war by the Japanese Imperial Army and held for three years. And they really have an amazing story of resilience and, um, and rising over adversity. So I, I love these stories of kind of women that history has forgotten. I love that as you're describing each of these, I was an art history major, so I am familiar with Dorothea Lang, but the rest I'm like, why don't I know these things? <laughs> so I'm so excited oh, to read good. the rest of well, everything you, you write. It, it's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much. You're a real kindred spirit all the way across the country. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Yay! Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you think Elise is as amazing as I do, and I hope you are so excited to read Fast Girls. I really, truly loved it. I highly, highly, highly recommend it, and I want to share it with everyone I know, which is kind of what I'm doing by sharing it on this podcast. If you would like to support the Find Your Awesome podcast, you can do it by sharing this episode and any and all of the episodes of this podcast. I would appreciate that so much. You can also do it by heading over to Apple Podcasts app on your phone and leaving a five-star rating and a review. I would appreciate that so much. As always, you can get more goodies over on kelseyabbott.com. If you want to get a human design love note specific for your energy type, head over to kelseyabbott.com slash love notes. If you want free meditation, go to kelseyabbott.com meditations and just play around on that website and you will find plenty of goodies. You are amazing. You are wonderful. I love you. Go forth and be awesome.